As we were singing How Great Thou Art, this thoughts that came to my mind as well. It's interesting that God says for certain people, they will suffer severely. I mean, and they're the household of faith. We're talking now about people who are saved, belong to God, and for whatever reason, God is going to allow them to go through extreme suffering, even as we sit comfortably here. All kinds of things are going on here. As we sit comfortably here and have this message, and some of them will actually lay down their lives, we can't even begin to go through the emotional trauma that they're going to be going through as they're torn apart. And maybe it's a wife watching her husband uh, terribly tortured and and then uh, martyred there or torn away from their children. It's going on around the world. And I thought, Lord, if you are requiring my brothers and sisters to go through that, What must you require of me when I have it so comfortable here today? So the point being, for me, for you, how are you living your life since you're a redeemed person? And knowing that your brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, are called upon God to suffer so severely when we can just kind of nonchalantly move through life And we want to pray and we want to vote and make sure that we have good leadership in this country. So that why? So that we can just keep on going that way? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. While they suffer, God says, I have called you as my children as well to live for me. To be righteous. To be that salt and light. And so I pray that we will do that. I'm overwhelmed with the material that I'm going to be sharing with you, and we need to turn me down a little bit. I just went up. I'm overwhelmed with a loud noise. Okay. Uh, I'm overwhelmed with the material I'm looking at in the book of First Peter, and I'll try to be quick to move through this and not uh, belabor it to the point where you lose the direction or what God would have you to get from this. As you know, today's been set aside to emphasize upon the hearts of God's people to pray for the persecuted church around the world. And believe me, if all we're doing is one day a year, we're really in trouble. We're really in trouble. We who live in this part of the world where Christians face very little heavy persecution, at least for the present time, can easily fall victims of the old adage, out of sight, out of mind. And I know we can't vicariously enter into their sufferings, and yet, as they suffer, we all sort of suffer with them, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12. The news media often impresses upon our minds and hearts the suffering that's going on in different parts of the world due to wars and conflicts, as well as natural disasters. But we hear little to nothing from our media sources about our Christian brothers and sisters who are being tortured, persecuted, and martyred simply because they love the Lord Jesus Christ and want to worship and serve Him only. Yet, enough is known that if each one of our brothers and sisters in the Lord were to be reported on, we would be overwhelmed by the great numbers who go through unbelievable suffering every day. In this International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, I want to focus our attention on this book of First Peter, and we're going to be looking at verses or chapter four, and that's verses seven through nineteen. And I've entitled this difficult subject "When God Calls You to Suffer for Being a Christian." When God calls you to suffer for being a Christian. We're going to begin with reading the scripture, and I'm going to have us do it responsibly. 1 Peter 4, it'll be behind me on the wall, so we're all reading the same uh, uh, portion of scripture there, out of the same uh, Bible. But uh, I'll read verse 7, you read verse 8, I'll read verse 9, and so forth as we go through this portion of scripture. I think by us doing it together, you really end up getting more out of it. So let the Lord speak to you as I read verse 7 and then you 8 and so forth. Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep courage in your love for one another, because you 
Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. When God calls you to suffer for being a Christian, I want to begin with when God's fire falls on the church. You saw in the text, very clear, he tells you it will. When God's fire falls on the church. First of all, expect persecution to come. I think we're a little bit surprised by that because we've been so insulated here in this country. But he says, expect persecution to come. This whole context of 1 Peter 4, and for that matter, the whole book of 1 Peter, is about you as a Christian being called upon by God who saved you to suffer and possibly suffer even unto death. It's all about you implicitly trusting him even when that becomes his plan for your life. Now, I find that interesting. Because you know something, if the Lord tarries, every one of us is going to face a point of time when God says, I'm now calling on you to die. Not by persecution necessarily. Not by martyrdom. But it's now your time to die. It may be of a disease. It may be of old age. It may be of an accident. But he says, I'm now calling upon you to die. And what do you do in that situation? You implicitly Trust him because you put your faith in him that you know that you have eternal life and you're going to immediately be taken into his presence. He calls for the person who's suffering to do exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Expect persecution to come. Here in chapter 4, he focuses our attention on trusting him when he calls fire down upon his church, upon you as one of his reamed children. We're so foreign to that here. As I said, out of sight, out of mind, and God forbid that we had ceased sinning in that way and be burdened about our brothers and sisters that are daily going through such severe persecution. We sometimes read verses out of the Bible without even giving them a thought. Here's one. Here's one. Paul writes to the Philippian believers in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Well, wait a minute. I like that it's called on for me to believe in him, but now he says not only that, but also to suffer for his sake. When you don't live in a place like Smyrna, you can quickly pass over Jesus' words to those brothers and sisters simply by exempting yourselves out of the situation they're in. Over Revelation chapter 2, Jesus chose his words very carefully when he spoke to those suffering ones and those about to suffer in that church. He says to them, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Oh, you're going to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. So you, by the way, right now around the world, there are so many of our brothers and sisters that are, that's where they are, in prison. Terrible prisons right now. Boy, why? Because they're believers. They love the Lord Jesus Christ and put their faith in Him. So that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. I don't think he's talking about a literal ten days. He's talking about a a period of time you're going to be tested. Be faithful until death. Wait a minute, I didn't want to see that. Be faithful until you're released. No, be faithful until death. And I'll give you the crown of life. We read those verses. But we seem to be exempt here in this nation I suppose that's just about to change. In our text, in verse 7, Peter tells these believers, listen, do you read it? Verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near. I think Peter realized that things were beginning to change in the Roman Empire. They had tolerated Christianity, but now he sees that is beginning to change. And before long... To be a Christian is to be guilty of an act of treason. Not only that, and I don't even think Peter knew this, but Nero was going to burn down Rome and he's going to have to look for a scapegoat. And he thought, aha, I will blame the Christians for my insanity and my actions here. And therefore, you know what happened. And Peter, evidently, the Holy Spirit was preparing him for that. For he wrote this book to prepare these people for what they were about to suffer. And they were brutally massacred. You can read about that in Fox's Book of Martyrs and other places in history. The end of all things is near. If he wrote that back then, where are we today? Where are we today? In verse 12, Peter says, Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And I'll bind you. If it takes place in America, you will be surprised. And you will be overwhelmed. Because we have for years had it easy. And yet our brothers and sisters around the world are in just this situation Persecution has come upon them. You know, Cain was a religious person. You would think a religious person would tolerate other religions. But what did he do? He killed his brother Abel. And we're told by the Apostle John why he did that. Why? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why he killed him. That's why he murdered him. You see, this world will not stand for somebody saying that God has absolutes. That there's absolute truth and there's absolute morality and a path that you're to walk on of absolute righteousness. They will not stand for that because men love darkness rather than light. Jesus lived a humble, holy life, as you know, going about doing only good to others, revealing to them the one true God, the way of salvation, his truth, so they could know the truth when they were in all that polytheistic world that they were living in back then. And not only that, he came that they might be forgiven of their sin, that they might have eternal life, that they might go to heaven. And what did they do? They martyred him. How did they martyr him? By the brutality of crucifying him. Peter says he'll be your example here in this book, this letter. Peter calls these Christians aliens. He says you're strangers. Other places were called pilgrims in a world where Satan presently rules, including America. We are the object of God's love, which Satan hates. And Satan and men of this world system will always hate those who are the Spirit of God, who say that there is truth and righteousness and that there's no compromise there. They will always hate us. So he says, expect persecution. For you've been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but as Paul says, also to suffer for his sake. Charles Haddon Spurgeon He writes on this subject of the Christian's tribulation. Here's what he writes. He says, Art thou asking the reason for this, believer? Look upward to your heavenly Father, and behold him pure and holy. Dost thou not know that thou art one day to be like him? Wilt thou easily 
be conformed to his image? Wilt thou not require much refining in the furnace of affliction to purify thee? Will it be an easy thing to get rid of thy corruptions and make thee perfect even as thy Father which is in heaven is perfect? Next, he writes, Christian, turn thy eye downward. Dost thou know what foes thou hast beneath thy feet? Thou wast once a servant of Satan, and no king will willingly lose his subjects. Dost thou think that Satan will let thee alone? And then, look around. Look around thee. Where art thou? Thou art in an enemy's country, a stranger and a sojourner. The world is not thy friend. Be assured that thou shalt find foemen everywhere. When thou sleepest, think that thou art resting on the battlefield. When thou walkest, suspect an ambush in every hedge. Lastly, look within thee into thine own heart and observe what is there. Sin and self are still within. Ah, if thou hadst no devil to tempt thee, no enemies to fight thee, and no world to ensnare thee, thou wouldst still find in thyself evil enough to be a sore trouble to thee. For the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. End of quote. Yes, expect persecution to come, because the end of all things is near. And I really do believe that to be true today. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God when God's fire falls on the church. But secondly, secondly, (coughs) exult when you're persecuted. That's a problem for me. Have you processed that at all? Okay, here's Jesus hanging on the cross. Terrible, terrible pain. You know what they did to him beforehand. Not only that, now God pours all the weight of the sin of the world. You're my sin upon him, the perfect sinless one. He's become our substitute. And now God pours out on his wrath. Look carefully into his face and see if you see any exalting going on. I lay at bed the other night thinking about that. Look carefully into his face. See if you see any exalting going on. Listen, this is something that evidently focuses into the future of absolutely knowing that God will accomplish his purpose and his son will be glorified and through this we will be redeemed and be with him. That's where the exalting comes in, not when you're going through such horrific pain that you can't even think straightly. How to pray for those who are going through persecution. Terrible, terrible pain, emotional physically, and yet he says, exalt. How should we view this, these trials and persecutions when we find ourselves in them? Peter says, not in surprise or as something strange that were happening to you, rather see God's plan, because he tells you in advance, and his purpose in them for your testing and refining and strengthening, as well as a powerful witness to the unsaved who are perishing, and then also it's for the glory of God. That's where the exalting comes from. Who for the joy set before him. But you will see joy on his face. It's he's in extreme agony. Bearing the sin of the world and the wrath of his father. And all that pain as well. But the joy set before him. The outcome of it all. Well God has something to say to you and me. When he calls us to suffer as being a Christian. Jesus' own words, he said, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. Paul had something to say. He said, We also exult in our tribulations. You mean, Paul, you didn't go through any pain? There wasn't any trauma in your life when you went through all this? Are you kidding? Certainly there was. Put him up with thongs and lashes back until it's bleeding and lacerated with whips and with with little uh, pieces of bone in it? Certainly. He wasn't just singing at that point. He sang afterward in the prison. 
But we exalt in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. May I say this? So many in this country have asked Jesus into their heart and they've never gone through any perseverance. How do you know you're really saved? If you've never gone through tribulation to say, I really, I know I'm likely to flounder. I'm likely to, 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 to fall into sin through this because of the terrible ordeal I'm going through. But I know I'm going to still hang on to God and God's going to hang on to me. And Paul says tribulation brings about perseverance. He says if you're genuinely saved, you will persevere. That's the trouble in a country like this where everything goes so smoothly. Oh, we have our problems. But let's not call that persecution, okay? How do I know? Maybe the church is being filled full of people who are praying a prayer that have never gotten saved. You know, the wheat and tare will grow together. He said that. So maybe we should invite the tribulation to show what is really there or what is not there before it's too late. Peter will develop that a little bit later on here. He said that perseverance brings about proven character. May I ask you? What's your character like? What's my character like? What's being revealed about me? About you? He says this will bring about proven character. It'll show what's really there. If you're a Christian, if you're growing in the word, if you're a person of prayer, if you're walking with the Lord, if you're living your life for him, or is it just, no, I'm thankful I'm in a country where I can just float along, and God says that is about to end. And proven character, hope. Yeah, hope. Lord, no matter what happens to me, no matter with my brothers and sisters, who some will be home with you before this message is concluded, they have hope. They have that guarantee that they belong to you and they're going to be ushered. Death is a servant that will usher them right into the presence of God. If that's your will for them, Father, then I thank you that they have that hope, that assurance there. Therefore, he says, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen. That's the suffering, that's the persecution, that's the pain, that's the torture, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. James Half-brother Jesus, consider it all joy when you enter into various trials and temptations, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith, what? Produces endurance. We know so little about that. I, all my years of going through Bible college, reading the Bible through, being a pastor, I know so little about that. That testing of my faith produces endurance. Had it pretty easy, to be honest with you. And let endurance have its perfect results that you may be mature or perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Look at Peter's words there, verses 13 and 14 of our chapter 4 there. Go back there to your text there. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. For if you revile for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Exalt when you're persecuted. For God does call you to suffer for being a Christian. There are reasons why you can exalt when God's fire falls on you. First one's verse 13. Let's go back to that again. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So one reason why you can exalt when God's fire falls on you is because you share Christ's sufferings. It says, you're not in this by yourself. You're sharing Christ's sufferings. Remember Paul, before he, before he was saved, he was called Saul, out there persecuting believers that had become Christians, and then God stops him in his tracks and he says what? Saul, Saul, what's the rest of it? Why are you persecuting me? Whoa, him? No, he's persecuting these believers. Jesus says, you're persecuting me. That's what Peter brings out here. 
So because you share the Christ suffering. A second reason is because his revelation of glory will be your unveiling of glory and reward too. He says that. By the way, throughout the book he says that. He says, when my day comes, your day will be of revelation will come as well. Your day of glory will come as well. The world has yet to behold Jesus glorified, unveiled as a great creator of all things, unveiled as a great ruler over all things, unveiled as the great redeemer of his chosen ones who have also become his bride, unveiled as a great judge of all mankind and the unregenerate folk and fallen angels, unveiled as the Lord of glory, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. And when his day of unveiling of glory comes, he promises you, he declares to you that your day of glory will come as well. That's why you can exalt when God's fire falls on you. But there's a third reason. Verse 14, notice that verse. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's the very presence of God resting on your life. The spirit of glory and of God is resting on you. I think it's like this. Our brothers and sisters, some of them will... Their, their life will ebb out of them. Their physical life will ebb out before this servant's over. But when it happened to Stephen, he said, I see the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father. And what was he doing? The Lord Jesus Christ stood to, to welcome Stephen home. You will not die alone. If you're called upon to suffer and the fire of God falls upon you, you will not go through it alone. That's what he's talking about because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's kind of like when God came to Abraham. He came to him and then he walked with God. This verse seems to indicate the unusual fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit upon you to bless you, to strengthen you, and to give you a foretaste of heavenly glory, as I said, perhaps like Stephen. When he entered the presence of the Lord, as those stones crushed the life out of him. Thirdly, Peter says something else about when God's fire falls onto the church. Expel deserved persecution. Don't be persecuting for, for per, be persecuted for doing something wrong. It's interesting he puts that in there in verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief. I can just imagine thinking, let's get a, a little action going here and we'll kill Nero and these Roman soldiers, you know, and we'll change the, the political scene here. Huh. In fact, Jesus had some of life that he called to be his apostles. Zealots, they were called. But don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. And, and by the way, if you go through the book of First Peter, you're going to see several different places he brings these things out. Uh, I, I want to give you an assignment. Sometime when you're all by yourself, take the book of First Peter, and real soon, since this is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and read it out loud, just slowly. Just go through and begin to read it out loud. You'll be amazed the things that will pop out that the Holy Spirit will draw as you say, oh, that relates to this over here, and I never saw that before. It's just an amazing thing to do. But expel deserved persecution. He talks about the slave. Said, look, if you're in rebellion and you suffer and you bear up under that, that doesn't do a thing. But he says, if you're being suffering because you are being faithful to the Lord and you suffer, that brings glory and praise to God. Number four, exchange shame for glory. Exchange shame for glory. Verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. The word Christian is found only three times in the Bible here. In the book of Acts, Acts 11, 26, and then chapter 26 of 28, verse 28 of Acts. It was originally pinned on Jesus' followers by his enemies as a term of reproach. I think today the word Christian often means to many people the opposite of being a pagan. 
If you go to Thailand and you say you're a Christian and you're sharing Christ, they think it is a, an American religion. That's what they think. Oh, you're from America. How interesting. Huh. You can see how it'd be easy to feel ashamed when you find yourself in a crowd and you are standing alone. Those who have power and positions of power have the upper hand. They mock you as being stupid, being foolish, believing in Christianity and therefore only one way to heaven, believing in a literal six-day creation when science, quote-unquote, has proven evolution to be true. And they mock you in the classroom, outside the classroom. In the universities filled with, full of evolutionists who stand there mocking and ridiculing and demeaning you and people who are in these positions of power and control seem to have the upper hand. And now move that from the idea of creation versus evolution over into a world full of Islam. A country like Islam. And you saying, I have renounced Islam for the Lord Jesus Christ, who's not just a prophet. He is the true Son of God. He died on a cross. He was raised from the dead. He is my Savior. And guess what? You're not only going to be ridiculed. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be beaten. And you probably will be slaughtered right there. He says, listen. Bear the shame. Receive the glory. Exchange your shame for glory. When asked to recant his faith in Christ and he'd be set free, how would you like to be in a situation like that? Enemy comes in and says, I'll tell you what, you don't have to die. Your wife doesn't have to die. How about your children that you love so they don't have to die? Okay? All you have to do is recant this Jesus Christ and you can all live. Polycarp, who pastored that church in Smyrna around the middle of the second century, said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And with that, they burn him at the stake. God will give you that strength when he pours his fire out upon the church. When God's fire falls on the church. But now, follow carefully. When God's fire falls upon the unsaved. When God's fire falls upon the unsaved. Verses 17 and 18. God says through Peter, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first. What will become or what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? When God's fire falls upon the unsaved. First, I want you to see the great contrast related to time. This is where we often miss it. The great contrast related to time. Peter emphasizes our great need to weigh this present time of suffering with the future when time is poured into eternity. That's what's happening in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, that's the present. Now he shoves you out of time into eternity. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In this present time, God is allowing in his sovereign will of all things, and control over all things and all beings, for his precious redeemed church to undergo suffering simply because they are objects of his love, and they in turn love him. And he's allowing it. Sovereign God. Absolutely in control. All power, all knowing, and yet he is allowing it. They are hated by Satan and those in his world system. Why? Because the darkness hates the light. Man in his fallen sinful nature cannot stand holy God whose standard is nothing but less than absolute righteousness and truth. And he cannot stand it. 
He must rid him of that. Peter's point? What's his point here? If God treats his precious redeemed children this way, what will he do to his enemies who hate him and do not obey the gospel of God? That's his point. If he does that to his church that is blood-bought and he loves you and he allows that, what will he do to his enemies? Illustration. Asaph, in the Old Testament, the Psalms, Psalm 73, he was overwhelmed by the afflictions that were poured out upon God's people. And listen, the relative ease and comfort and manifold blessings that were being, being enjoyed by the godless people. I mean, everything's going smooth for them. But God showed him that it was an issue to be seen in the contrast of time. It's always an issue to be seen in the contrast of time. He writes, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. The great contrast related to time. Repeatedly throughout scripture, God reminds you and me that this physical life is what? A vapor. Just a vapor. Like a watch in the night. That's a sentry that comes on guard duty, and after three or four hours, he goes off duty. It's like a hand breath. That's four fingers, just a short little period of time. Uh, description of that. It's like a mere breath. In fact, the psalmist says, Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Just a mere breath. The vapor in your life, physical life, is gone. Listen, God may call you to suffer as a Christian, but your momentary light affliction producing for you an eternal weight of glory is quite the contrast to the eternal punishment and torment of the godless, unsaved person that is about to receive that from the same God who has mercifully stepped into your life and saved you. The great contrast related to time. But secondly, the great contrast in the people. Perhaps I should have put it this way. Number two, the great contrast between the righteous and the godless. The great contrast between the righteous and the godless. This is a quote by Peter out of the Old Testament, Greek Septuagint from Proverb 11.31. Verse 18 says... And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? And in Proverbs 11.31 it says, If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Ponder soberly those words. Think long and hard about them. Those words, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. How difficult is it for you to be saved? The difficulty is not with you. The difficulty is with God. For Him to be able to step in and save you and me, He must give the most dearest thing to His heart, His Son. And then the way He had to give Him Not just that he would come here to die physically. That had to be as well. But no. He had the perfect sinless one had to bear your and my sin. All of it. And then he had to bear all the wrath of God. And he said, if it is with difficulty that I saved you, even though I allow my fire to be poured out upon you, what will become then of the godless man and the sinner, the one who disobeys the gospel of God? What a sobering question. Those who do not obey the gospel of God. The gospel of God, that's the good news that Jesus came to give and provide. Presents the only way a person can be reconciled back to God and be forgiven and go to heaven. But of course they reject that. 
mock you. Gospel of God demands absolute acknowledgement that you are a guilty, condemned sinner on your way to an eternal hell. Have you settled that issue? I don't know who's all here this morning. Have you settled that? Is that where you are? That you, the gospel of God demands your absolute acknowledgement that you are a guilty, condemned sinner on your way to an eternal hell. The gospel of God demands that you place your faith completely, completely in God's Son and Him only to save you who took your place in your judgment. But it doesn't stop there. You look at the book of Romans, elsewhere in the scripture, the gospel of God demands your obedience. So, if you somehow thought you could just, I don't want to go to hell, obviously I don't, but I do want to have a good life. I want to enjoy life. I want to do my thing, but I don't want to go to hell. Okay, you say, if I ask Jesus into my heart, he'll come in and save me. Guess what? He probably did not come into your heart and save you. It demands obedience. Demands obedience. This is not me. This is... The scripture, if your life has not changed and you're now comfortable, man, I've got my ticket, I'm going to heaven, but I intend to live the life the way I want and just enjoy it. Listen, dear one, the Bible talks about the wheat and the tares. They're allowed to grow together. You need to soberly and I need to soberly ask that, answer that question. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? And that brings us to number three, the great contrast in the judgments. The great contrast in the judgments. Paul tells us that we who are saved are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But oh, what joy. Not a one of us who's redeemed will stand there and give an account for any sin. Isn't that great? Boy, can you say amen to that? I I want to say amen because I sin every day. You didn't know that. Don't tell Mary. I've got her buffaloed. I sin every day, but you know what? I'll never stand before God and there at the judgment seat and have to give an account for those sins. Now, I will lose or gain reward. That part's true. But listen, when it comes to the unbeliever, he's going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment, and there he will have to give an account for all of his sins. And if his name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, he is cast into the lake of fire where he's going to be tormented day and night forever. You say, how, if it's with difficulty that God saved you, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Boy, what a frightening thing. If God is presently pouring out his judgment upon his beloved people who are as precious in his sight, if he's allowing Satan and the unsaved people who make up Satan's world system to persecute and torture and murder his precious people right now as going on around the world, what will become of the godless and the sinner, those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, that brings us to the final point, what to do when God's fire falls. What to do when God's fire falls? First, recognize, accept it as God's will. That's what he says in verse 19. Recognize and accept it as God's will. Verse 19, therefore those who will also, those also who suffer according to the will of God. God's allowing it. We may not understand it. It's a hard thing to go through. They shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. When Peter began this book, over in chapter 1, he says, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. If God sees it necessary, it will come into your life. It will be unavoidable. In chapter 2, verse 21, he says there, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So he said, it's part of the Christian life. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. Peter concludes, after you've suffered for a little while. So evidently it's part of his plan. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, I love it, he steps into your life. He will himself perfect, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What to do when God's fire falls? Recognize, accept it as God's will. Number two, entrust your soul to Him. That's so hard to do. You're in the extremity of pain, torture. I go to bed at night and I almost feel guilty. Maybe that's why I don't sleep at night. I say, Lord, I'm laying in a nice, comfortable bed. I have a pillow. I have brothers and sisters that are out on a cold stone floor with hardly anything, just huddled up, trying to get through the night. Entrust your soul to him. That's what he says. Therefore, those who also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter does the most amazing thing, and this is the part I don't want you to miss. He does the most amazing thing. He focuses his reader's attention on Jesus Christ who went through terrible suffering and death and then was raised up to life. Go to chapter 1 with me. This is the part you don't want to miss. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Okay, there. Notice that. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope. Not just hope. A living hope. How's this going to work out? Next words. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You are focused on a living Christ who went through it, through death, and conquered it. And he will see you through it as well, all the way through suffering and even laying down your life. He, the living Christ who went through it, he will see to obtain an inheritance, he says, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. Wow. So so precious to me, I'm pouring the fire out upon you. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is, the living Christ is right there with you. The living Christ. You've been raised up with him. He is your life. And he goes on, and though you've not seen him, and that's you and me, you love him. And though you do not see him even now, even suffering, you don't see him, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He wants you to see you're connected to one who went through terrible suffering, death, and was raised up and is now living the glorified Christ. And he is with you every step of the way through your suffering and the laying down of your life if you should be called to do so. And then number three, so much more I could say, due to time I mustn't. Continue doing what is right. Continue doing what is right. He says there in Again, verse 19 of chapter 4, Therefore those who also who suffer according to the will of God <clears throat> shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This portion is so familiar to you, but look at chapter 2, 21 through 25. For you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. By the way, remember now, he's alive. He's alive. Who committed no sin? Boy. My brothers and sisters going through excruciating torture, pain, emotional, physically. Who committed no sin? Doubts may be filling their heart and mind right now. Nor was any deceit found in their mouth, his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. You know how that is? Boy, how you wish you could lash out at them. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Huh. What did he do? 
but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. God will have the final word. God will right all wrongs. And oh, the glory of that day when my brothers and sisters stand before him and receive their reward for suffering. It will be an incredible day of glory. That's what Jesus did. He trusted himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. God may pour fire out upon you and me. He does part of his church. I guarantee you will to the unsaved world. But oh, blessed be God, Lord Jesus Christ, you went through it first. You won the victory. I am now united with you. I will have your spirit poured out upon me in great power, and you will provide in every way for me. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, there's so much more that needs to be said, but due to time I can't. Lord, we can't put a name or a face to the multitude of brothers and sisters that right now are suffering beyond words, brutal tortures, because they put their faith in you and will not recant. We sit in our comfort, and Father, I wonder if you require them to go through that, what then do you require us to go through who have it so good, so comfortable, with such ease? Are we to pursue a life of ease? Are we to pursue our own selfish pursuits of gratitude? Absolutely not. And maybe our turn is very soon going to come. I would pray for revival. Revival in our prayer life that we would pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, and bear their burden up in prayer before your throne of grace. Father, again, while ready, I know that Kathy has prayed for our suffering brothers and sisters. We do pray that they will be faithful even unto death. We pray that, Lord, their testimony might be used to bring uh, unsaved people to saving faith. Lord, may it bring great glory to you because for whatever reasons you are allowing it. And Father, we thank you for that day as Paul, I'm sorry, John would cry out in our hearts, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, when we'll all be home and we get to shout the praise as they're rewarded beyond incomprehensible understanding. But Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to live differently because of this message and because of the book of 1 Peter. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.